Uh, if you are visiting, we're uh, really glad that you're here. We love to just kind of uh, walk through books of the Bible, teach through books of the Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. We'd love for you to uh, grab one. You can always slip up your hand and we can, we can get you one. Uh, if you do have one, go to Luke chapter 10 uh, this morning. Uh, we've been in uh, Luke chapter uh, Luke chapter 10, the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through the gospel according to Luke, and this has been just an uh, awesome, wonderful, beautiful study to uh, look at and see uh, the wondrous work of Jesus Christ in his incarnation as he walked and lived this life and ultimately will die and rescue all those who he will ransom to himself through his broken body and, and shed blood. So uh, it's going to be a, a fun one this morning. Uh, but before we uh, dive in, let's, let's ask again God to illuminate hearts. Uh, we always say that there, there's nothing that can, that can happen in this magically by, by just reading words and hearing a sermon and, and singing songs. We need the, the Holy Spirit of God to show up and act um, for us to see uh, any change, any conviction, any uh, awareness of the truth. So uh, let's go before. Maybe just give you a second. As you walk in cares, thoughts, anxieties, burdens, uh, I'm sure if your day or week has been like mine, uh, it hasn't been calm. Uh, so ask God to graciously give you the stamina to listen, give you the ability to maybe shut out some other things so that you can hear from the living God as he communicates to us through his wondrous word. If you're in here and you're, you're not a Christian, you're... I'm not even sure what you believe or think. Maybe just say, God, if you're real, reveal yourself this morning to me. How would you help me to see truth? God, we're in desperate need of this book that you've given us to, to learn from and to see more of your glory and your, and your worth. Father, forgive us for neglecting you this week. Forgive us for our lack of love for you lack of affection for you. God, would you stir it up this morning? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter uh, 10. And just to kind of give you guys um, maybe an awareness of, of kind of where we're at, where we've been, Luke is uh, a book that um, this writer Luke is writing. He, he traveled with Paul, had been with Paul, and he's writing to this guy, Theophilus, who is a Roman official, um, mostly li likely a government official. He's trying to persuade him of the, the person and work of Jesus and his teachings. And so uh, what he really wants to get at, though, is that this Jesus Christ is the only way that you can enter the kingdom of God. Okay, that's been... Luke's point throughout this whole gospel that he has assembled and put together on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that's what he wants us to get. So what's important is you've got to understand why books are written, who they're written to, to understand why everything is in it. So today we're going to come to a parable, which is really a story. It's probably one of the most well-known parables you've heard. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you've probably heard about the Good Samaritan. That's, that's been kind of on your radar. You've been taught to share your lunch and be a Good Samaritan. You've been taught to look out for your neighbor and be a Good Samaritan. You don't even, you don't even not only share the details of the story, but, but you've heard about the Good Samaritan. Now, I do think that this parable, if you understand it in the backdrop of why Luke is writing um, is one of maybe the most misunderstood ones. Um, I think that, that we think that Luke basically puts this in here to make nice people nicer, okay, to see the lame beggar on the side of the road and help him out. And that, those aren't bad things, but that's not the point. That's not really good news. The good news is that we get to enter the kingdom of God based upon no act of our own. It's not that we get to be better people or nicer people. I say this a lot. You know if you've ever tried that, that's awful news, Right? The gospel transforms, doesn't train behavior, it transforms into new creations. 
Um, and so we're going to see a beautiful uh, witness of that as Luke's purpose is laying before us, even in this parable, that Jesus Christ is the only way to enter the kingdom of God. That's why he, he puts it here. That's why he includes it here. And it's a parable that's unique to Luke. It's only in Luke. And so um, here we're going to see just basically one thing. Um, the story of a self-righteous religious man asking how he gets in the kingdom of God. We're going to see now that seems ironic, Right? A religious man asking how he can enter the kingdom of God. Because you think if someone's religious, right, that they would know that. That they'd understand that. And, and here uh, we're going to see that that's not the case. So verse 25, Luke chapter 10. So we're going to pick it up. He's been uh, doing his ministry. He's probably teaching somewhere right now. His face has been set towards Jerusalem. Remember ch chapter 9, verse 51. We said that was one of the most important turning points in the gospel of Luke. To see that he is on the way to the cross now. He is on the way to the hill to die and be ransomed and, and by, by God himself for the sins of humanity. So in light of that, let's see what he says. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So he's probably teaching somewhere. Uh, a lawyer who's really a scribe sees Jesus teaching and wants to say something, which they always do. And he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This means, what, what, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have my sins forgiven? What must I do to, to enter into the kingdom of God? To have, to have fellowship with God? Now understand, just to, even at this point, if, you're, if you understand the Old Testament, your heart's being nagged for the promised Redeemer. Like, you know the Old Testament points out of itself to one that will come and rescue God's people, who he thinks is namely only Israel at this point. So he's going, okay, well, how's that going to happen? He's aware of that. He's not quite sure the implications because they're denying Jesus, who really is the incarnate Son of God, who is the Messiah, who is fulfilling all the promises. So he's saying, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And this, the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered right. Do this, and you will live. Okay, so, so Jesus is likely teaching somewhere, and, and this lawyer stands up and basically says, Hey, teacher, I've, I've got a question. Now, understand who this lawyer was. He was really a scribe, kind of the same person. He's an expert in the Old Testament law, expert in Mosaic law, expert in the Judaistic law. He knows all the laws, all the systems, and he's really actually kind of a tattletale for the Pharisees, okay? They would send these guys out who were experts in the law because they were trying to indict Jesus, ultimately to have him crucified, right? That'll ultimately what happens. They're trying to catch him in a pinch, look at him, watch him disobey the law. So they send out these scribes to be around. You'll see this throughout the Gospels, right? They're always there. They're always asking questions. They're always trying to trap Jesus. And the best part is you can never trap Jesus. That's why I love, I've loved going through the Gospel of Luke and seeing these stories and parables and examples and, and circumstances where Jesus just gets them. He always backs you in a corner where you can't get out without admitting it's you, Jesus. He's going to do that here. But for the sake of where we're at right here in the text, he's, he's showing, he's revealing that he knows the mind and heart of this scribe who is trying to tattle and catch him in something and indict him. So he asked this question, the, the, the scribe, this lawyer asked Jesus a question and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why don't you tell me? You've got it memorized. Like, that's weird. Why are you asking me that question, right? That's someone, like someone who has majored and, and mastered and gotten their doctorate in physics and <laughs> they ask you a question about physics. Why are you asking me? Why don't you answer that? He's like, you know the law, and namely, these scribes knew that you could basically sum up the whole entire law of God in two ways, your relation to God, your relation to people. 
right? So this, this, this answer here sums up basically the Ten Commandments. The first half is all about your relation to God. The second half is all about your relation to people. So, okay, well, if I love God with everything I have, that fulfills the first part. If I love my neighbor as myself, it fulfills my relation to people. He knew that. They would recite this multiple times a day. So they were fully, firmly aware of this, the greatest commandment being to love God, love your neighbor. So he answers and says what any scribe would say. Well, yeah, the summation of the entire Old Testament law. Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the truth, though. Here's what is kind of like the footnote that's invisible, is you have to do that perfectly to inherit eternal life, right? Like you have to have unending, perfect worship towards God, perfect killing of sin, perfect sanctification growth, perfect you know, throwing off every hindrance, taking every thought captive, perfect delight in God, perfect delight in his commands, perfect delight in worshiping him. Has anyone ever pulled that off? Nobody. Just Jesus. Nobody else has ever pulled that off. And so Jesus asks him this answer and he responds. And Jesus basically is thinking and is going to roll out. You want to be in the kingdom of God? Then do that perfectly every minute of every second of every day. Have perfect trust, perfect devotion, perfect delight in God. The bottom line is no one enters the kingdom of God if you don't love God perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly as you would want to be loved yourself. No one enters it unless you do that, right? And this is why Jesus basically is going in this text, he's basically going to um, offer this basically kind of Luke or Leviticus 18, right? He says, you're right, do this and you will live. If you go back that, it says, keep the law or you will die. Now it's showing that the law was always given, not so that you always obey to basically earn a right, but it points outside of itself to show you that when you can't keep it, you're cursed and you must die, so someone else has to take your place for it. That's why they did sacrifices, that's why they shed blood, that's why they did all of these things, was to show and demonstrate that the law can't save you, it points you to somebody who can save you. That was the whole point of the law, the whole point of the Old Testament law, was to show that keep it and you'll live, right? But no one can. No one can keep it, perfectly keep this. So when you don't, you, there, there's a curse. There, there's a payment for that. The wages of sin is death. And so here, uh, Jesus quotes Leviticus 18 and says, you're right, do this and you'll live. If you love me perfectly, then you'll fulfill the perfect first part of the law. If you love your neighbor perfectly, you'll fulfill the second part perfectly. And you're good. Check it off. Enter into my presence. So, so here's what Jesus is not telling him. Jesus is not telling this guy how to get saved by keeping the law, by loving God and loving your neighbor. He's not saying if you do that, you'll get saved. He's not saying that this is how you behave to be saved by the law. He's showing you that you can't. He's trying to show the lawyer that he can't. This guy who's so self-righteous, so absorbed in his morality and what he does is a religious individual. And Galatians 3 is going to say what? The law was given, so it's your, it's your tutor, right? It's like your teacher that leads you to who? Christ. So Jesus Christ is always the goal. So the, the goal of everything is to get you ultimately to Jesus. Now, the best way I've ever understood how to understand the law is think of the law, 
you know, in the, in the forms of, of a ladder. So here's what most people do. Just imagine a ladder right next to you, okay? Use your imagination. We're back in kindergarten, elementary school. You got this ladder. Most people use the law as earning, as obtaining, as getting closer to God, getting closer to heaven. So every ladder piece you step up, right? Every command you obey, you get higher, and you look more superior than everybody else. So as you attend church more, or you don't cuss, or you got a clean mouth, you don't drink, you don't swear, you pray more, you study your Bible, every good command of God that he gives you, every time you obey one, you step up the ladder, you look down on everybody who doesn't. And then you feel like you're getting closer to God. That's how most people view the law. When that's an incorrect, unbiblical view, really what you should do is wrap the ladder up, lay it down on the ground like railroad tracks, and see that it's leading you somewhere, and it's a guardrail for you, pointing you and leading you to someone, which is Jesus. So it's not a ladder that's upright. It's a ladder closed on the floor where you're going, man, wow, I'm off here, I'm off here. I can't stay on it right, and it's pointing you to the one who did it right, did it perfectly for you on your behalf, who takes it all for you in the cross of Christ, right? That's how we see the law. It drives you somewhere. It pushes your heart somewhere. It lays you before the court and acknowledges you're guilty and shows that there's only one man, the incarnate Son of God, who, who bore the wrath for you in that sin, who lived the perfect, obedient life for you, did it all and says, hey, I'll be that law-bearing, cross-bearing Christ for you. That, that was always the purpose of the law. And so because of that, look at what happens in his heart. This is what self-righteous people always do. They try to justify themselves, right? And it's always about them. Look at what I do. Look at me, attention. He says in verse 29 this, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? <laughs> he, he knows he doesn't love God or his neighbor perfectly. He knows that. He's aware of that. So he tries to justify himself. It means to actually proclaim yourself righteous. That's literally what it means. It means to proclaim oneself righteous. And so he says to proclaim himself righteous. And this guy who's in, understand, these guys who are experts in the moral law, here's their issue. They never look at the hard issue. They only look at external actions. So notice he leapfrogs loving God. Because that's invisible. You can't see that, Right? I mean, how do I really know if you love God? Yes, you'll see fruit, yeah, but I mean, someone's hands are up in worship. doesn't mean to love God more than someone else, or someone's hands are down. It doesn't mean someone loves God more than someone else, but your neighbor, you can visibly see that, right? That's visible. I can see tangibly how you love your neighbor, how you care for them, how you love them, how you go over and, you know, pick up their leaves or mow their grass, or you, you can see how you love your neighbor, but love for God's a little bit more invisible. So he skips that thinking, well, I love God. I'm good there. Do you have, like, a different definition of, of neighbor? I mean, maybe I'm missing it. I want to make sure I've got that right. Why? So that he can check the box and everyone can praise him, everybody who's watching. Because he thinks Jesus is going to say, okay, love your Jewish friends. Love Israel. Love your family. Oh, I, I, I'm good there. I mean, he can't be talking about loving the Gentile, right? He can't be talking about the liberal Sadducee, right? He surely can't be talking about my enemy. So do you have a different definition of neighbor, Jesus? He's trying to justify himself, justify all that he's done, all his merits, all his Judaistic roots, all his circumcision behavior, which Paul says in Philippians 3, what? It's a bunch of garbage. I had all that. Because, man, I, I followed the law perfectly, man. That was, but without Jesus Christ, man, I was laid bare naked in front of him. 
Because it has nothing to do with those outward merited acts of my own. No goodness, nothing. Grace alone, through Christ alone, saves you. And so here, this is so beautiful. Uh, as he answers this, Jesus is really going to back him into a corner as he's trying to understand and thinking what Jesus is going to say and ask who his neighbor is, trying to get a different answer from Jesus. Jesus answers him by telling him a parable, telling him a story. He's going to answer two things. One, the question of who's my neighbor, and most importantly, his initial question, how do I have eternal life? How do I get eternal life? That's what he's going to answer here. So Jesus replies to the man and says, the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he, at first, can you imagine asking Jesus or anyone a question? They just start going off on a, on a story. Like, you know, like it's just modern day, right? Hey, Mike, how do you get saved? Well, you know what? There was a dude I saw down at ShopRite, and he was walking down 17. You know what I'm saying? Like, like what are you talking, right? Always meaning, always point. So here, Jesus, I love it. Just, I would love to be in this just knowing how he said it and the smile and just, I don't know, it just would be great. But he replied saying, a man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Fell among robbers, he stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So Jesus tells this scribe or this lawyer this story to answer who's his neighbor, but more to answer his original question. How do I inherit eternal life? This is why you've, you've got to read the Bible. Like, you, you, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. The initial question is, how do I inherit eternal life? So we know that Jesus cannot be telling this story just to teach him social justice, right? I mean, that would be a great thing, a beautiful thing, but there are other places he can do that. That's not the point. That's not the main drive of Jesus in answering and giving the parable to the Good Samaritan. He's not trying to show you how to care for your neighbor. He's trying to show you how to be neighborly, how there is a heart affection that is coming out of someone who has eternal life. And if you don't have that, then you realize you have not inherited eternal life. He's not trying to answer for the man, let me show you who your neighbor is. And you'll see, he's not even going to answer that question. He's going to turn around and flip it on its head. So he uses a road that, that anyone would know. It's this road from, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it really did go down. It was actually a 17,000-mile road. It dropped about 4,000 square, square feet. I'm not building something. It dropped like 4,000 square feet below sea level. So it, it was a, a bad road. Shady stuff happened on this road. People got robbed all the time, got beaten up all the time. It's like a 17-mile back alley. Bad road. And here goes this man. Okay, and, and can we remember something in this whole thing? It's a story. These aren't real people. Like, I mean, they're, they're real types of people, but this isn't like a physical event that actually happened. Okay? So this man just happens to be walking down the road, Jesus says, and he gets beaten, he gets stripped, he gets robbed. He's lying naked, left for dead on this road. And his first source of potential hope shows up. A priest. A priest is walking towards him. I don't know when he sees him, how he sees him. Remember, he's fictitious. He's not real. So, so he goes and he sees this man and for whatever reason, he passes by him, wants nothing to do with him, doesn't help him, doesn't care for him. Now this is a 
This is a man. A priest was someone who, again, served God, was seen as upright, seen as holy, sacrificed for the people. He was a guy who understood the law and understood the summation of the law, which was love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if there's anyone who's going to care for this man, it's a priest because he knows the law. Right? See, see, What's the point with the priest? Now, I've heard people say, well, he didn't touch him because he probably looked like a dead body and they couldn't touch dead bodies, so they left. Or, you know, I don't know, maybe like he was going to be made unclean if he, if he touched him. That's another, you know, law, so he just didn't want to do any of that stuff. And the guy's not real. You know, like we try to like get in their head. Listen, the point Jesus is getting at is look at the way this guy is supposed to love. If there's anyone who would see this man and would love, it'd be a priest. And what does he do? He ignores him. He passes him. And he heads on his way. That's the point. The point is very simple. It's not complicated. He didn't love the man he should. And out of anybody, it should have been him. Because he knew what God had said. He knew it was right good in the eyes of God. See, that's why he's showing, he's revealing to this lawyer, it's about you. Look at the heart of this priest. If he really loved God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved his neighbors himself, he would have helped the guy. And then a Levite comes by, right? A Levite. Levite's just junior varsity priest who never plays varsity. That's the easiest way to understand a Levite. He just is really humble, doesn't make a lot of money. He was probably walking, not riding on a mule or a donkey. He knows the same things the priest does. He knows the same law the priest does. He has no excuse like the priest does. He does the same thing. Looks at him, has no love for the man. Doesn't help him does not show that he loves God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and doesn't show that he loves his neighbor as himself. Two men who you would think out of anybody would naturally help. So both of these men demonstrate they don't love God because if they did, they'd follow his commands, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So here's what we're seeing right at this point. Being religious participating in all the ceremonies, your heritage as a Jew, your circumcision, your law-keeping, being highly connected to the religious system, being a priest, being a Levite, ain't going to get you in. Because even they can't follow this perfectly. Even they're unaware of their subconscious sin. Here's where it just gets scandalous. I love it. Verse 33, a Samaritan. Here, here we go. Jesus is like, one more guy's going to walk. A Samaritan. Samaritan comes walking down the road. Same road, same place, sees the same man. Came to where he was, and when he saw him, he has compassion. That's how the lawyer would have heard that. He had well, he what? He had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own care animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you will spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. Because they were like a mixed breed. They were like half Gentile. What happened was when the northern and southern kingdoms split, some Israelites left. They married off Assyrians who were allegiance to the Assyrian king. And so they no longer were kind of, that was them kind of saying, I'm leaving my Jewish heritage. I'm leaving my allegiance there. I'm becoming allied with the Assyrians. 
And so things just get super hostile between them if you just read history in redemptive history in the Old Testament, bleeding into the New. I mean, Jews, they were going to go all the way to Jerusalem to do sacrifices. They could have cut right through Samaria. They'd never do that because sometimes they were murdered. They were terrified. No one ever let them stay anywhere. We learned that right when Jesus sent the 12 out to go preach the gospel and he sent them to the Samaritan village and they didn't let them do anything. And so this Samaritan who is super hostile, if there's one group of people who doesn't qualify to love your neighbor as yourself, it's a Samaritan to a Jew or vice versa. So listen, the lawyer knows there is nothing the Samaritan would have loved more than to see a Jew lying half naked for dead on the road. He would have loved it. And he never would have helped him. In normal society, in normal understandings, right? And so here the Samaritan sees this. And what does the Samaritan do? In the story Jesus gives, he shows compassion. He shows astonishing love. Like love that's not normal in him, right? And look at what he does. He kneels down and he starts cleaning the man, cleaning all his wounds. He starts to probably rips off pieces of his clothing to make tourniquets for his limbs. He takes the wine out that he would have used to drink and he, he washes it to sanitize his entire body. He takes the oil he'd used to cook on his journey and he also pours that all over to basically soothe the tissue, soothe the wounds. Then he picks the man up, puts him on his mule or his donkey, carries him all the way to the end, checks him in, stays with him, cares for him all night long, and then as he's leaving says, hey, if he ever needs any help, I'll give you almost two months worth to take care of him. Let him stay here for at least two months and if you do anything else, I'll come back and pay you astonishing love, right? That's what you're seeing. You're seeing crazy, unbelievable, divine love. So here's the point now. Two men were religious, yet totally loveless, heartless, and loved on condition. One man, probably not very religious, loved on no conditions, regardless they were a friend or an enemy. So, That peace, being religious, doing all the works, all the merits, all the goodness, that doesn't enter you in the kingdom of God. Something else must, right? Which is why Jesus asked this question at the end. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answers, the one who showed him mercy. Can't even say Samaritan. Hates him so much. Can't even say his name out loud. Oh, the guy, you know, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says to him, one of the most profound statements in the Bible. Not what we think he's saying. Okay, you're right. Now go and do likewise. Do the same. Jesus turns to the Lord and says, hey, let's forget about your neighbor for a second. Who's the one who's actually being neighborly? Who's the one who's actually demonstrating that he's loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength that is naturally overflowing into loving your neighbor as yourself? Well, the third guy, the Samaritan, at a, at a wretched, hated enemy, he loved his neighbor as he would want to be loved. I mean, when you're lying on the ground naked, left for dead, you don't care who helps you, Right? I mean, just, can anybody help me? 
Look, if we've had bad ties, bad strings, let's just mend them up at least for a few days so you can get me better. None of us in any condition, even if you had your worst hated enemy in your current life, would you care if they came and helped you? All that would be thrown out the window. No one would be like, oh, oh, you know what, man, we had a, mm, we've just not gotten along. Don't help me. Don't save my life. Right? Like, no one would say that. That'd be crazy. You'd be overwhelmed at the mercy and kindness. You'd be overwhelmed at the grace. It would stun you. You'd be questioning it in your head the whole time he's carrying you on his mule and donkey to the end. You'd be going, why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? And so the guy answers and says, the guy who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you're right. You go and do the same. You want eternal life? You go and do the same. He can't. The lawyer can't. He's incapable of perfectly loving his most hated enemy as himself. He's incapable of so wholly loving God with all his affections, all his delight, all his worship every single minute of every day. He can't go and do the same. He's incapable. Jesus is answering his initial question. How do you obtain eternal life? Okay, if you want eternal life, then you go and do what this guy did perfectly. And all of a sudden, the lawyers are confronted with, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, don't, think, I, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> like, I, I don't think I can love like that. I don't, I don't think that's in me. I don't know. Goodness, gosh, maybe, maybe I need to get off this veneer that all this stuff I do actually gets me the kingdom of God. Maybe I need to humble myself a little bit and realize that, I mean, there's spaces in me that are crooked and not right and, and sinful and broken and depraved. I mean, that's where Jesus wants him to go. That's where Jesus wants the heart of this lawyer to go. You're right, you, you can't. You can't go and do the same. You can't go and do likewise. No one can, right? So he wants, the whole point of Jesus saying this is to get the scribe or the lawyer to reveal his total depravity and total inability to enter the kingdom of God based on all his merits and all his religiosity and all his goodness and all of his worship in the synagogue and all of his circumcision and all of his law keeping and all of his alignment to the religious system. He's trying to show him, man, outside of having a provision that's not you, not based on your goodness, you're done. You can't do it. You can't get in the kingdom of God. It's impossible. See, that's what Luke has been trying to get us to see from the beginning of him writing. This isn't like random. He puts us beautifully here. Because where's Jesus going to, to, to Jerusalem, right? He's made, set his face towards Jerusalem so that we can see what he's going to do and how people get saved. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to make nice people nicer. He didn't come to teach you how to do, you know, heal the lame beggar, care for your neighbor. He will do that. He does show that. He does demonstrate that. But that's not why he's explaining the parable of the Good Samaritan. This has every bit to do about you realizing your total inability to enter the kingdom of God outside of the provision and work of Jesus Christ. That's what you're seeing. That, that, that's what Jesus is painting here. He's trying to get the guy to see this in his own heart. It's amazing. That's why Jesus says this. He doesn't say that so that the lawyer leaves and boosts up his resume with nicer deeds can't be what he's saying because that doesn't get you in the kingdom of God we know that and Luke's been teaching that 
And Jesus teaches that. So here he's showing us. He wants to get the lawyer to a place where he just admits his need. That's what the law does, right? It forces you in a corner where you just admit your need. You're, you're guilty, you've got nowhere to go. You go, okay, I, hands up, I, I, I'm guilty. I realize I, I can't do it. No matter how righteous I am, and he's seeing that he has not perfectly loved the way the Good Samaritan has. And I love it. That's why Jesus here says in the beginning, keep the law or die. The whole point is that he would see, if I keep it perfectly, I'll live. If I don't, there's judgment. And I need someone to redeem me and rescue me. So here's just where we got to go. Two places, all right, as we land the plane. One, one is where are you like the lawyer trying to earn what's already freely been given? Where are you functionally acting in your life, in your thoughts, in your works, where you're trying to build up for yourself a resume, believing that if you go do those things, you'll somehow enter the kingdom of God? That you're, they're your functional stars on your, on your emblem. You're just tallying them up. And you look down on everybody else. And you're so aware of everybody else, and you never look at your own heart, never look at the own root issues of your heart. You only look at external actions. It's all you focus on. Jesus is laying our hearts bare here. And he's showing us that God has made a way. It's not built on our effort, not built on our being good. It's in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. So this doesn't mean you don't obey the law. This means you can't save yourself with it. Because here's what's awesome. Um, There are kind of, I think, two primary ways you can read this beautiful story. One is, and it's the unbiblical view, and that's that basically all God's commands are burdensome, they're exhausting, you never feel like you can win. So God beats people for smiling, right? So he just gives you these commands, gives you these laws, gives you all of these works just so you are beladen, you are tired, you are exhausted, and you realize, man, I just, I just can't win at this. Okay, or there's the, the second view, which is biblical and right, which is God is a God who's after worship. So you understand that God has given laws, given deeds, given commands that are wired in a certain way that give you greatest joy in your walk, greatest joy in your marriage, greatest joy in your relationships, greater joy in life because you're now living, functioning, and acting in the way God has initially designed it all to work. When you step out of that, then it leads to exhaustion and weariness. When you step into that in joy, then it leads to greater life. This is why David, right, busts out in one of the longest psalms in redemptive history, Psalm 119, and he says, man, I love the law of God. I delight in the law of God. It tastes like honey on my lips because I'm walking in the ways God's wired me to walk, right? But some of us buy the lie saying, well, the law isn't really for my good. It isn't really for my greatest joy. God is after me just begrudgingly submitting and begrudgingly obeying. That is not the God of the scriptures, God is after your joy. He's after life for you. He's after rescuing you from your enslavement to other things that are of lesser value where you belittle his name and can't walk in joy and you walk in frustration and pain and agony your whole life constantly buying the lie that somehow that's how God has laid out commands. But God's laid them out for our joy because we delight in them. And so when a heart has been made new in Jesus Christ, listen to me, the law no longer terrifies you. It tastes really sweet. Right? If you're a Christian, I want you to I mean, drill down. If you're a Christian, if you're walking with Jesus, if you're repenting of sin, if you're living in the freedom that is the light, right? Not concealed sin, not hiding, not trying to get in the back alley. You are openly walking in the light. 
you know that the law of God is your best friend. You treasure his commands. They're a warm blanket for you at night. They protect you. They guard you. They look over you. You shape your marriage by it. You shape your parenting by it. You shape your, how you spend your money by it. You shape how you're in relationships by it. And you know it always leads. It always wins out for you. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean it's not painful. But it always wins. Right? So, so when you've been made new in Jesus Christ and the law no longer terrifies you and it tastes sweet, then you hear the law say, hey, do we have any other gods before me? Of course. I mean, every other God that exists has to be appeased by something. Every other God that's made and fashioned by human hands has to have merit, have work, have prayers, have something. But man, you appeased yourself by giving of yourself to ransom me and purchase me to yourself. You don't have to be appeased. If he says, hey, man, don't, don't take my name in vain. Of course not. How can I be trite about the one who saved me? Man, when the law says, hey, don't do this and do this, you go, man, yeah, I want to do and I want to not do to make you visible, make you glorious so people can see more of your glory and worship you and be found by you. All of a sudden, the law is something beautiful for you. Second, you have to see where Luke places this. You have to see it. That's why I love books of the Bible. I love walking through books of the Bible because the placement of everything is never random, right? Chapter 9, verse 51. I told you, if there is a, a verse you circle that's a door hinge for Luke, it's 951. He is now leaving the ministry of basically healing, preaching, teaching to basically witness that he is the Messiah. He is now turning his face towards Jerusalem. The tone changes, the witness changes, the direction changes, his teaching changes. This parable is placed by Luke on his way to Jerusalem. And he gives a story about the Good Samaritan. Well, who's the Good Samaritan? He, he tells a story about this guy who comes and sees a guy he doesn't know and kneels down, who's, who's left for dead, who's broken, who's bruised, and he, and he binds his limbs and cleanses his body and carries him to an inn frees him from slavery because if he doesn't actually, if he gets out and can't pay his bills, he's going to go back into slavery. So he rescues him from death and from slavery. Now, I think you're all smart enough. You're going, the good Samaritan's Jesus. Now understand, that's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is what Jesus is teaching, which is how you have eternal life. But based upon where Luke is placing it, inexplicably, as he's heading to Jerusalem, it has to be the case that the Good Samaritan that Luke is painting for us, as he's going to do this, is Jesus. I mean, we're the guy lying in the street. Broken, bruised, beaten, and here is the Good Samaritan that comes and he sees us and has unbridled, divine, insane, reckless compassion towards you as you are dead, as you are helpless, as you can only give sin, you can over-offer bad deeds, you can all, only offer imperfect work and worship, and he comes and he cleanses you of your sin and he picks you up and carries you to the inn of God where he pays your debt over and over and over and over. Luke is so wonderful how he places things. Must because he's divinely inspired. But he gives us the story. That's why he puts it here. 
and he shows us who the good Samaritan really is. And he shows us how God has loved us in Christ. That we were lying naked, shamed, desperate for help. And Jesus walks by and he takes note of you. That's insane. He doesn't let you sit dying in your sin. He could, it'd be right, it'd be just, it'd be fair. We were an enemy of God, right? Well, you're an enemy of me, so why should I help you? Because he's the only thing that exists that has perfect divine love, perfect divine compassion and mercy. So he stops, he sees you. Some of you guys remember the moment, you remember the time, and he kneels down and he starts binding up your broken limbs. He starts healing and washing and cleansing the sin sickness in you. He picks you up, really carries your sin right on the way to the cross. He, he puts you in the end of God, the family of God. You're safe, you're secure, and even as you're lying, they're still helpless, only can be helped by his payment alone continually, right? That's why we're saved by the gospel and refined by the gospel. You're lying in the end of God now the rest of your life, and he cares for you still. Even when you subconsciously sin, even when you inadvertently sin, you're still in the end of God. No one will take you out of it. And he says, hey, any payment that needs to be made, I'm going to pay the debt. Keep paying the debt, and Jesus is going to do it. The sovereign God of the universe, the wrath-absorbing cross of Christ, is going to stand in front of this dying, helpless man who deserves this, and I'll take it. I'll keep paying the debt. Oh, oh, just, just an amazing picture here. Amazing picture of Jesus. So let's, let's end with just taking some self-inventory for one second. What if God sent you an Excel spreadsheet and just showed you your incurred debt? Every word, thought, action, deed. Put it on the spreadsheet of the screen right here. We all saw it. Every way you didn't give properly, every way you didn't love your neighbor properly, every way you coveted somebody improperly, every way that you didn't follow the Spirit's leading perfectly, every place that you fell into sin didn't choose Jesus, every way that you were slow to forgiveness, not quick to forgive, every sinful last act, thought, deed in your heart was pasted on the screen, what would your debt that you owe look like? And I think this is what makes God's forgiveness in Christ so incredible. Someone has to incur your debt. Someone has to pay for it. So he kills Jesus to pay your debt. He doesn't kill you. That's why you can either pay God back in hell or he can pay him back through Jesus Christ. And it keeps him bothly holy, just, and right in both actions. He gets paid either way. Yet Jesus Christ steps in and incurs the debt that you owed. He couldn't pay off. And he pays it off in full. And doesn't just pay it off in full, gifts you his righteousness. So you're clothed in him. So you walk in newness of life. The new heart, new mind, transformed. Amazing, amazing grace. So number one, maybe some of you guys have bought the lie, the self-righteous lie, that you only have a little debt to God. Well, I mean, compared to like Donald Trump and Paris Hilton, and I mean, I'm pretty good, right? I mean, I've, I've got my rap sheets clean. That's just enough for you to go to hell, right? Because again, how does God pay you back? Hell or Jesus Christ? The, the, the barometer is not you and other people. It's a holy, righteous God and you. So there's God and there's people. And here he shows us this. So God pays him back with the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Belief systems will say you pay God back through reincarnation, through purgatory, through a chant, through a prayer. You can't pay God back. That's the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's great news. You can't pay him back. Christ alone pays it for you. Paid in full. It's finished, right? You had no money to pay him. You had only sin to offer. You were lying dead, naked, shame. You had no ability to even perform anything on your own. And he says, hey, I'll love you and ransom you and rescue you. The, the second thing is um, maybe he's saying to others of you this morning, hey, look at the lawyer. Some of you are so caught up in your morality and all that you do and how much you pray and how your church attendance is that your love actually doesn't increase for people, it decreases. So instead of walking in divine love and compassion, you walk with a haughty arrogance and presume upon his grace. Maybe Jesus is saying, hey, look at the lawyer. Pay attention. Look at your heart. Why is it responding this way? Why is it reacting this way? Are you seeking to justify yourself? Maybe you've forgotten what you've been rescued from. So you've got to be careful because your tendency is to turn back into this lawyer and presume upon his grace and demean people, look down on people, and beat people up with the truth. Third is, some of you guys feel just utter shame, guilt, condemnation. You know you're a sinner. You're fully aware. You're like, Mike, I, I know I'm outright guilty. i got really good news. Jesus pays your debt. He offers to pay your debt in full and stand in the, in the gap for you and stand on the judgment, judgment of God for you and take that wrath for you and cleanse you of your sin and then make you a part of his family so then you can get put into a good local church community and you get to walk and worship and have accountability and you get to actually fight sin and pursue Jesus. Maybe that's you this morning. You repent of sin, you trust in Jesus and then you start walking. And you get under good teaching and you get around people that love Jesus and... You begin to fight your sin through the Holy Spirit's power and you begin to pursue a new master, a new love, not your sin, but Jesus. Because that's really, that's really where the gospel and religion shy away, is it not? That's really what you see here. You have the good news of Jesus Christ, unmerited, perfect favor of God given through no act of your own when you were incapable of doing anything, right? Then you also have this religious attitude of how can I keep justifying myself and keep doing things so I somehow get in the gates of heaven. And so, so religion simply says, hey, you feed the poor, you love your neighbor, you do good, then you and God can actually have a conversation. The gospel says, no, come when you're naked, come when you're shamed, come when you're lying, dirty, damned, condemned. You come then and I'll give you rest. I'll heal up your broken wounds and I'll bind your broken body and I'll cleanse you of your sin. Because the gospel always happens when Jesus is ultimate. Religion always happens when Jesus isn't ultimate. And that's why in your relationships, in your life, if Jesus isn't what you're after and you're just getting better behaved in your marriage, you're not looking to the Father, not looking to the Son, going, what is he like? How does that shape my marriage? And you're just going to do good things and you'll be forever lost because you're not pursuing Jesus. So let's be gospel-centered men and women who pursue Jesus when he's what we're after, when he is ultimate. God, help us in that, right? Let's ask him. God, thank you that you're a, a good God, that you're a kind God, that you came and saw us naked, shamed, beaten, and bruised by sin, enslaved, and able to free ourselves outside of your good, kind, compassionate work in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you're about making new creations and not just training behavior in people. 
Thank you that you're after worship and not just good works. God, thank you that the law tastes sweet to those who have been made new in Jesus and no longer terrifies our souls. God, would you help us to just do some good examination, good self-inventory, and then walk rightly as a result of what you have said? Would you help those this morning that admit their shame, guilt, condemnation? God, would they find great relief in the good Samaritan of Jesus Christ who comes and says, I'll heal you, I'll cleanse you, I'll restore you, and I'll keep paying your debt in full. God, for those who have lawyer tendencies, would you bring us back to the reminder of what we've been rescued from? Would you help us to walk in a humble gratitude, not a haughty arrogance? Father, for those of us who are disillusioned by our sin, don't believe our sin is that great, don't believe our sin is that serious, our belittlement of your name is not that big, God, would you reveal that? Would you reveal the worth of your name and the worth of the cross and show them by the example of the payment of hell and Jesus Christ how serious it is to you? Would you save some this morning? Would some repent of sin and turn to Jesus and then walk and pursue him? Help us, Father, we need it. By your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Every uh, Sunday.